Well, good morning. I'm Tom Werner. I'm one of the elders here at Green Tree, and we are happy that you are here with us this morning to worship. If you are seated on an inside aisle, grab the book, if you will, and pass it down. We are happy to know who's here, and if you'd let us know, we'd appreciate it. It is, of course, Thanksgiving Sunday. And because of the way that the calendar falls this year, we are not yet in the church season of Christmas that is called Advent, and we've just finished up a series. And so we, have, we are free agents today. We can do anything we want. I hope, let's see, uh, I hope I get money like J.D. Martinez. You think I will? Never mind. So and we are going to talk about Thanksgiving today. We're going to talk about four meals of Thanksgiving. We're going to talk about what it means to have a completed table. We're going to talk about some of my favorite topics, including God's grace and eating and drinking and talking. We're going to talk about all kinds of things. I'm going to ask you a question, which is who is at your table? So our primary subject for this morning is grace. In our scripture, King David, king of Israel, invites a man who should be his enemy to eat at David's table. Through the example of David, we're going to look at the character of God's grace. So here is our sermon in a sentence. David's invitation to Mephibosheth. Say that five times. I'll get it wrong, but not too far. And David's invitation to Mephibosheth to eat at his table reminds us of the beauty of God's grace and the pleasure of inviting others to participate in it. So from 2 Samuel chapter 9, here is the beginning of our story. So David is speaking and he says this, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the story of David, the story of food and friendship and grace. We thank you that your steadfast love never ceases, that your mercies are new every morning, including this morning and that your faithfulness is great. We pray that by our worship and the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, we would grow in confidence in you and your grace alone. Amen. As the story opens, David is at his peak as warrior and king. In the chapter immediately before this, 2 Samuel chapter 8 David, as the general of the Israelite army, has defeated all of the surrounding tribes of Israel. So the Philistines, the Moabites, the Amalekites, all the other ites, all of those tribes are now paying tribute to David and to Israel. So David has come into prosperity and power and reputation. Sadly, I think it is 
often at just this time of life, during a period of success and plenty, that many people become self-congratulatory and self-consumed. But to his credit, David was thinking of others. David began to think back on the time before he was king. Once upon a time, David was a nobody. David was the youngest son of a farmer from the small town of Bethlehem. David had seven older brothers who were good-looking and physically imposing. David was the guy who took care of the sheep on the back lot and nobody paid any attention to. So he was disregarded by his family and overlooked by others. But of all the men of Israel, God chose David for great things. By God's grace, David defeated the Philistine champion Goliath. By God's grace, David ascended to the throne of Israel. By God's grace, David became a mighty warrior who defeated the tribes around Israel. Now I want to pause for just a moment because for some of us, I've used the word grace three times and I'm going to continue to use it through this message. And um, for some of us, that may be just Christianese. And in addition, I'm a lawyer and we always define our terms. So God's grace, what do I mean when I say grace? I mean God's kindness, or better yet, God's unmerited favor. God showed David grace in showing him unmerited favor. favor. And so after his successes, David remembered all the things that God had done for him, and he asked, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? David made it clear that he did this to reflect the nature of God's grace. As David said, is there no one left to whom I can show God's kindness? So we are in interesting territory here. David thought back to his best friend, Jonathan. In 1 Samuel 20, we read that David covenanted with Jonathan that David would always show kindness to Jonathan's family. But we should also know that it was not unusual for a new king to have all of the relatives, all the descendants of a deceased king killed. Every surviving descendant, every surviving relative of a deceased ruler was a potential threat to the new ruler in that he or she could become the central hope of a rebellion. For instance, in 2 Kings chapter 9, we read that the new king of Israel, that was Yehu, and some of you may remember that we talked about Yehu this summer. Yehu killed the old king, took the throne, took the old king, killed the old king's wife and all of their many sons. So what would David do when the common wisdom was that the descendants of the old king should die? Now we can imagine David coming into the kingship and having to define for himself what kind of king he would be turning over questions like this and many others, talking, walking with his counselors in the morning, working late at night, and as he did so, asking and reflecting, what kind of king do I want to be? Now, one of the great things about reading the stories of David is that sometimes we can read David's thoughts, and I mean that quite literally. That's because David wrote down his thoughts in the Psalms, and they are right there for us and accessible to us. So, for instance, 
David tells us how he thought about God's grace in Psalm 23. It's likely that you know it. David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever." Now, I have a pastor friend who made, uh, there are only six verses here, he made a six-week sermon series out of this Psalm 23, and I think we could do that this morning. You'll be pleased to know that we won't. (laughs) So we are going to just spend a few minutes, but just even a brief glimpse into this psalm tells us something about David's attitude towards God's grace. So... David starts off saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David compares himself to a sheep who has a gracious shepherd that provides all of David's needs in green pastures and beside still waters. Everything David says that he has comes only by God's kindness. Then David says about God, you, God, are with me, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. David also says that God prepares a table for David. God offers David not only material blessing, but relationship. And God is a consistent presence in David's life. And then David says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Isn't that an interesting word? So this is, of course, Old Testament. And we have no particular evidence that there's ever been a resurrection. And yet, David has confidence that he will be with God forever. There is no expiration date on God's care for David, and so it will never end. So let me ask you, on what basis do you make life decisions? David is here contemplating specifically what he might do about any of the descendants of Jonathan and Saul, but he has all kinds of other decisions that he's making. On what basis do we operate? So we see here in Psalm 23 that God's grace captures Saul and guides his life. David is centered on God's grace and he makes his choices accordingly. I hope that the grace that God has shown you has first place also in your mind, in your heart, and is your guide when you make life decisions. So we see in Psalm 23 that David has a love for God's grace, so we should not be surprised that David was persistent in his desire to show grace to Jonathan's family. David located a servant to Saul's family, a man named Ziba, and expressed his desire to meet with any surviving descendant of Saul. Ziba told David that there was such a descendant living, and we learned two things about this man. First, we learn that the man is a person with a disability, badly injured legs and feet, and he is living in a borrowed house at a place called Lodabar. So David initiates a plan to bring this man to Jerusalem. 
So we read next, then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered him, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? As this second act opens, I don't think that we can imagine the terror that was felt by Mephibosheth. There was a detachment of soldiers, likely, that came to his home and took him to see the king. And Mephibosheth had lived in fear of this day ever since he was a boy. There's a backstory here. We read in 2 Samuel 4 that when Mephibosheth was five years old, news came to the family that Jonathan and Saul had been killed in a battle with the Philistines. There was a panic in the home, and family members fled. There was a nurse who picked up Mephibosheth, but Mephibosheth fell, and his legs were badly injured. For years afterward, Mephibosheth lived at the property of a kind man in a remote place. The place was called Lodabar, which means place of no pasture. So you can imagine what that was like. It was a barren, remote place, likely in the desert as far as possible from the center of power. And Mephibosheth was staying there hoping never to be noticed. But now he'd been found and soldiers were taking him before the king. Mephibosheth had time to compose his words before he met with David. He knew his situation was desperate. Mephibosheth had no means of defense. He had no physical prowess. He had no wealth, no power, no political connections. Mephibosheth could only hope for mercy from King David. Mephibosheth kept his speech short, and each time he spoke to David, he bowed down to pay David honor. Mephibosheth first called himself David's servant, and then he called himself a dead dog. Mephibosheth put aside all pride when he spoke to David. And now we see the character of David. First, he calmed the fears of Mephibosheth by calling him by name. So you can sort of picture that Mephibosheth, as he comes before David, keeps his eyes down low. And David says, Mephibosheth, when he calls his name, he wants Mephibosheth to look at him so that there is an exchange between two human beings. And so Mephibosheth's fears are calmed. And then David made three promises to Mephibosheth. First of all, that he would show Mephibosheth kindness, that he would restore the lost inheritance, all the family lands, and that Mephibosheth would eat at David's table for all time. By David's promises, Mephibosheth's life was changed forever. And at the end of this chapter, we read that David acted on his promises. We read this, Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. 
but Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And now he was lame in both feet. So we're going to look for just a moment at how David's kindness to Mephibosheth reflects the grace of God. Let's compare the grace that David offers Mephibosheth and the grace that God shows us. So first, David took it upon himself to search out Mephibosheth in a remote part of his kingdom, much as a shepherd would search out a lost sheep. Mephibosheth really didn't have anything of value, at least not of worldly value, to provide to David. He was from a fallen kingship. He was a wounded man by his own personal fall, but David restored to Mephibosheth the estate that was lost, so much land that 35 people were required to work it. And for the rest of his life, everything Mephibosheth had came from the kindness of David. Then there are Christians. What's our relationship with God? How is it similar? So first of all, we have to acknowledge first that God sought us out when we were far from him, when we didn't have much, if anything, to offer. And we have to acknowledge that everything we have comes from the grace and kindness of God. Second, David offered more than just riches. He offered relationship You remember that Mephibosheth was now a wealthy man and he could now buy his own dinner. But David had him, Mephibosheth, eat at David's table just like one of the king's sons. In the same way, the grace of God offers us a new relationship. As Christian, God offers a relationship, a place at the table as God's sons and daughters. And third, we see that David's kindness changes lives for the long term. We get a window into the future when we read that Mephibosheth had a son, Micah. Micah's whole life was changed by David's kindness. He never knew a day living in a remote place. He never knew a day without plenty. He never knew a day weighted down with fear, waiting for the judgment of the kings. And the same for believers, For believers, by the grace of God, our lives are changed and we receive eternal life. God changes our lives eternally. So let's stop for a moment and ask, how does the story of David and Mephibosheth apply to us? The answer is that we are in this story. So let me ask you, who do you think we are in the story? We are Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Any other nominees? (laughs) Well, I think we are Mephibosheth. But I I also think that we are David. So you could have blurted out either logical answer and been just fine. So how are we like Mephibosheth? If you are a Christian, you have known the reality of grace. So I'd like you to think for just a moment 
about Mephibosheth's feelings on the first night that he was brought into David's house, was told that this was what he was going to do from then on, and that he should dress for dinner. Man, can you imagine the exhaustion, the, 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 the crying, the joy? I thought two hours ago I was a dead man. I thought my head was going to be separated from my shoulders, and now I'm fixing up my bow tie to go with my tuxedo and go down and eat filet. Woo-hoo! Right? Oh, what a relief. So that's the reality of grace. It's not always exuberance. It's not always, re- but, but the, we should feel that feeling that God has pardoned us and he's given us everything. And this is great. Can you imagine any more enthusiastic rooter in all of the kingdom of Israel than Mephibosheth was for David? That's the way that we should feel about our God. But we're not only Mephibosheth, I think, that we are also David. So to me, David is a model of how to respond to grace. David does two things. The first thing is that he is thankful for grace and he expresses his thanks to God. That's what the 23rd Psalm is all about, right? It's David expressing to God how thankful he is for God's provision, for God's grace. So thankfulness expressed. And then the second thing that David does is that David invites people, people like Mephibosheth, to the table of grace. Those of you who've been around Green Tree for a while know that if I do a message and I have the opportunity, I like to show something visual that I think captures, I hear laughter over here, that captures the ideas expressed in the message. So here is my curated choice for the message this morning. Everybody loves a curated choice. I don't know what a curated choice is, but you've gotten one now. A curated choice Usually when I do art, I do classical, you know, Caravaggio or Botticelli, but today we're going popular. So we're going with Norman Rockwell's curated painting that is titled Freedom from Want. Norman Rockwell called it the turkey from Thanksgiving. It is apparent, our subject is apparent, that is there is an extended family here that is celebrating Thanksgiving with a huge turkey. The painting is therefore, since it's titled Freedom From Want, it is about material satisfaction, but it's also about more. Now, I want to pause for just a moment, and the first thing that I, I, I want to talk about is that turkey. See that woman in the back, kind of bending out, holding that turkey? That's a styrofoam turkey, don't you think? <laughs> it's got to be a styrofoam turkey. I think they must have posed with the empty tray and because she couldn't possibly hold that, that thing. So this is about material sufficiency, but there's more here. It's also about relationship. This family genuinely enjoys each other, and you can see the connections in the family. So you can see the grandmother and the grandfather in the back, and they are connected to each other, first of all, by, by the turkey. So you can see the carving implements are just to the grandfather's right, but you can also see that there seems to be an affection and a closeness between them that is probably the product of many years spent together. You can see three women at the forefront of the table who are involved in an animated conversation. And there are also two men in the back who are, who are talking with each other. We can see the one on the left, but we can't really, the, the one on the right back in the back is, is hidden. So this is not only about materiality, but it's also about relationship 
and it is also about grace. So this is one of my favorite parts to this painting. It's said that Norman Rockwell had a complicated relationship with organized religion, but his family says that he had a faith, and I think that it shows here. So this painting is permeated, it's suffused with light. There is an outside light source, it's almost blinding, that comes through the the, uh, curtains in the back, and it rests on everything and everyone in the painting. So he's given us a, a white tablecloth with all white implements. So that's the, the light that's shining through, right? And, and, it's, and you can see the reflections on those. So for instance, if you take the casserole dish that's in the front, it's white on white painting. I don't know how you paint a white casserole dish on a white tablecloth, but he does. Um, it's said that Norman Rockwell, I didn't, it's not just said, I called a Rockwell Museum to find out a little bit more about how he did this. He, he used 12 different shades of white in painting this painting. But most important, look at how the light falls on the people. The light <laughs> falls on every one of these people, on their, on their heads, right? And it seems like that is the grace that comes in through the window. And every person, every face on that painting is imbued with dignity and a, a sense or a look of the eternal. I criticize the turkey, but I think his use of white is marvelous. So I want you to see one more thing about this painting. So as we look at the painting, Rockwell has made us more than just onlookers on a scene. You and I are personally entering this family gathering together. And each of us wants to know, secretly, is there still room for me at the table? And the answer is yes. So how do we know? Well, there are a couple people here who are inviting us in. So you see this guy, there's a guy on the lower right. He has kind eyes. You can't really see all of him, but he is looking expectantly or pleasantly at us. And he's happy that we're there. And there's a little girl on the left in the back, and she's happy we're there. Rockwell put these two people in to welcome us, and it is, they are my favorite people in the painting because I know that they want me to be there. So what is it that makes a table complete? Well, is it the additional side dish? I don't think so. It, it could be that we can get one last half slice of pecan pie in before the kitchen closes and we're too bloated to be able to finish it. I don't think it's the pumpkin pie or the pecan pie. I think that the table is complete when there is always room for one more. So how do we apply the story of David and Mephibosheth and the conversation about God's grace and meals of thanksgiving into some action items. Well, I would like us to follow David's model, and that's what we're going to do this morning. First, we are going to express our thanks to God for his grace to us. And then, secondly, we're going to think about someone to whom we can show God's grace. So we're going to do this in two steps. First, we're going to take communion together. So Green Tree folks, I know that you are used to having communion after the message. We're going to break that pattern today, so I don't want you to be shocked or surprised. So we're going to have communion. Daryl's going to lead us in that in just a minute. And then we're going to come back together, and we're going to talk about part two of our mission. So can I ask the servers to come forward and the worship group to come forward and I'm going to tell you about a little bit about our view of communion. 
in this sense. So first of all, we need to know that the story of Mephibosheth is a demonstration of the kingdom. Unworthy people are called by God's grace to eat as sons and daughters at the table of the king. We believe that the clearest expression of God's grace was Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross. So friends, you and I are called to the table this morning as surely as Mephibosheth was called to David's table. This morning we heard several things. We heard three things that we're going to talk about here. So first of all, we heard that as Christians, everything that we have comes from the grace and the kindness of God. Secondly, as Christians, God offers us a new relationship with him, a place at the table as sons and daughters. And third, as Christians, God's, God changes our lives eternally. This is not a Presbyterian table. This is not Green Tree's table. This is the table of the Lord. And so if you believe those things, please join us in communion. If you don't believe those things, we would ask that you would hold back until a time when you can affirm that you believe those things. So I'm going to ask Daryl if you would please lead us in communion. As Tom said, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper using an ancient practice uh, called intinction which means you simply come forward and you take a piece of the bread and you dip it in the cup. Just a couple of instructions. If you are gluten-free, uh, there is some gluten-free bread underneath the uh, napkin there, so you can take that and use that. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered disciples together and he shared a last meal with them. He invited them to his table to share in fellowship uh, with him. He took bread. And he blessed it, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. The same way, after the supper, he took the cup. Having blessed it, he said, this cup is the new covenant, the new bond between us in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. And whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death, the power of it, the significance of it, sins forgiven, the love that inspired it. We proclaim that to ourselves and to the world until he comes again. Would the, would the service come forward to take the elements? Before you come up, would you pray with me? Lord and Father, we give you thanks. As the name of this supper is called, the Eucharist, the rejoicing, we give thanks for your love for us in Jesus Christ. We know that we are undeserving. We know that in our hearts we have taken something beautiful and used it selfishly in corrupt ways. But in your grace and mercy, in your commitment to us, you are not content to leave us that way. You saved us by the blood of Jesus Christ. And now we celebrate that. Lord, by your spirit, would you use these very ordinary elements in an extraordinary way to remind us again of your love, to build us up in faith that we might leave this place more like Jesus 
than when we came. Would you, would you work that way by your spirit? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please come forward using the center aisle.
So let's pray together. Lord, we want to follow our older brother David. We want to therefore express to you our thanks for your grace that you have called us to your table, that you restore those who believe to right relationship with you, and that we will be at your table for, for all eternity. And we pray in your name. Amen. Okay, so now I would like to, to think about a second way that God's grace should be applied in our lives, also from David. And so here is my encouragement to you. I want you to start eating, drinking, and talking. Could you do that? I mean, that is what a table is all about, right? Eating and drinking and, and talking. I'm, and matter of fact, I'm confident that you can. When you all stood up and greeted each other a while ago, I got a look at some of your profiles, and I'm sure that you have been training in those first two areas. And you're also very talkative, so I think you can probably talk also. So... I want us to follow David's example, and I want you to do this, that is, eat, drink, and talk with people who do not know the grace of God, okay? So, I think that we see throughout Scripture that there is this link between grace on the one hand and food on the other, and we've seen it a couple times. We've seen it here this morning with David and Mephibosheth. We've seen it here at the Lord's table. We also see it in the life of our Lord Jesus, who we are told came eating and drinking, and he was accused of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He ate with all kinds of people. So here is my personal plan for the holiday. I left gainful employment about three years ago, and most of my old work friends I haven't seen in the interim. So I, uh, I had about eight or so of people that I've just lifted, listed off as probably my, the people I was closest with at the time. And so it's my mission between now and the first of the year to see if I can't get together for a meal or coffee or a conversation. It's probably food and coffee with all eight of those people, and I'm halfway through my goal. I'm also doing the same thing with my family members, some of whom I haven't seen in the last year. This is an excellent season to share a table with friends. I have two thoughts. One is that I'm going to make the meal simple enough that it will happen, right? So a fine home-cooked three-course meal with, paired with wines would be marvelous, but I don't think that will happen. And so I'm, I, if I stick to coffee, if I stick to lunch, whatever it is, I, I want it to happen. And the second piece of advice is as to the conversation. So with each friend... I am catching up on normal life. So I'm talking with them about work. I'm talking with them about their children and their spouses because I'm genuinely interested. But I am also asking one leading question. So the leading question that I've been asking so far is this. Is there something that has happened in the last year that has challenged your worldview? <clears throat> Just, I'm just interested to hear what people would say. So it could be something that's happened, something that they've been thinking about, something that in like their, their relationship sphere. It could be something that's happened in the wider world. And mostly I'm prepared to listen. But I hope that it's a conversation starter. I talked with a couple of other friends who are on staff here. So I also talked with Tom Ricks and Peggy Dimitri about this idea. 
And first of all, you need to know that your pastor indulges in cigar smoking. That is his favorite way of sitting down with people. I think that if there had been tobacco in Jesus' time, that he would have come eating and drinking and smoking cigars. So Tom gave me his lead question, which is, if there is a heaven, will you go there and why or why not? Tom says people are interested to talk about that. They're interested in expressing what their view is of themselves and God. Peggy Dimitri has something that she does primarily with women. It's called If Table, and it is, there's a series of questions, and the one that I like best of the questions that she gave me is, what do you think that God thinks of you? Okay? So there's just a conversation starter. And again, the main thing is, listen, just not to talk, just listen and hear what people have to say and see where the conversation goes. So will you join me? Who, so this is, your, this is your question, this is your challenge, who is at your table? Who is your Mephibosheth? Who will you invite? Call a coworker, call a family member, eat, drink, talk, invite that person to the table of grace. Have fun. So I'll tell you what we're going to do here. I'm going to ask each of you, I ask you the question, and now I'd like you to focus more on who might be your Mephibosheth. Who could you invite to the table in the next month or so to open up a conversation at the table of grace? So I'm going to give you a moment to consider who your Mephibosheth might be. Who needs to experience God's grace? To whom could you extend an invitation to eat? And so we're going to do that. I'm going to sort of open us. We're going to have a moment of awkward silence while you're thinking about this person. I'd encourage you to pray for this person. There will only be one person talking, and that child is however old that child is. So let's go to prayer, and then I will close this in just a moment. So, Lord, I pray for all those Mephibosheths who have been lifted up to you in the last few minutes, people who may or may not know your grace in its fullness and who are cared for and loved by people here. I pray, Lord, that each of them would feel your kindness, your love, your, your grace. And now, Lord, we thank you for your grace, for your unmerited favor, which you freely give to us as unworthy people. We pray that you would help us to have thankful hearts and to express our thanks to you. And we ask you, please, to help us to show grace to others. We pray in your name. Amen.